You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Good afternoon, everyone. Happy Monday to you. And I hope that by God's grace, you and your family are staying well. Thank you for joining me for today's live stream. I am excited to bring you part two of this short teaching series that I've entitled, Is America Under God's Judgment? Um, In part one, all the way back on June 6th, I made the case uh, for my first point um, that God has judged nations in the past based on their violation of certain universal moral principles. And we looked at many biblical examples of God's judgment against nations, and most importantly, Gentile nations, pagan nations, um, since that's, you know, a closer analog to what we're talking about here. We looked at many examples from scripture. We also talked briefly about the an idea in Jewish theology called the covenant of the Gentiles. Sometimes it's called the Noahic covenant. And what I see as potential moral ground for God's judgment against the nations. So tonight I'm going to pick it up right where I left off. I'm going to, um, you know, we, we established last time that God does judge nations, not just the nation of Israel who had his covenant, but that he um, judges pagan nations and what those standards are for judgment. So tonight, I'm going to look at the signs and symptoms of how to know when a nation is under judgment. And then in the final movement of the teaching tonight, I'm going to give my answer to the question, is America under God's judgment? This series is framed um, around three distinct points. As we answer the question, is America under God's judgment? So I've got, uh, Bob's got some slides there to help remind us of our big three points. Uh, The big idea in part one was this, in the past, God judged the nations according to his eternal moral law. That was the point that we covered in part one of this series. And we saw from Genesis to Revelation, we saw Um, how God has repeatedly judged the nations when they violate his eternal moral law. It's a repeated pattern from cover to cover. Now, in this second movement of the teaching, I want to gather a list of the symptoms and signs of what it looks like when a nation is under God's judgment. So that's going to be part number two. So Bob can put that slide up there. Great. What does it look like? when a nation is under God's judgment, because knowing these symptoms is going to help us answer that critical question of is America under God's judgment, because we'll be able to compare what the Bible describes as the signs that a nation is under judgment with what is currently going on in our own country and see if we notice any parallels. And once again, you know, it's like, why are you taking two hours to answer this question? Seems like a very easy yes or no question. Well, the reason I'm doing it this way is I want to teach you how to think it through. So when you're in a conversation with people, you can have a well-reasoned answer to the question more than just your emotions, more than just your gut. Okay. So that you can have some 
uh, biblical reasons and a way to make your case for how you're going to answer the question. So a really good place to start to build an understanding of what judgment looks like when God judges a nation. We're going to start in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And before Bob puts that up on the screen here, I want to set the context because this is what is called in um, ancient Near Eastern literature, it's called the Suzerain Vassal Treaty. And those of you who have taken my class on um, uh, hermeneutics and how to interpret the Bible, you know a little bit about this. Um, it's an ancient Near Eastern treaty between a king and his subjects. And God uses this common literary device or, or form, um, which would have been familiar to the ancient Israelites as a framework to communicate with the Hebrews about the relationship that he wants to have with them. And so the first part of a treaty is where the king, um, in this case, God, uh, explains how the relationship came to be. Uh, and so you'll see throughout the Old Testament, you'll see statements like, I am the Lord, your God. I brought you up out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt and delivered you something along those lines. That is the part of the treaty where God explains how the relationship came to be. Now, the second part of a suzerain vassal treaty lists the stipulations. In other words, what the servant or the vassal must do for the king. So this is where God explains the details of how the Hebrews were to love him through their worship, you know, going to the temple or the tabernacle, bringing their sacrifices, confessing their sins. Um, and then he also lays out how the Hebrews were supposed to love their neighbors. So love God, love your neighbor. Uh, things like you shall not steal, you should not commit adultery, you should not murder, you should not uh, covet your neighbor's possessions. So these were the stipulations. That's the second part of the treaty. So then when we get to Deuteronomy chapter 28, we get to the part of the treaty of the suzerain vassal treaty that it recounts the blessings and curses. And this is the section of an ancient treaty where the king would tell the servants what blessings they could expect for their obedience and for their loyalty. And conversely, what curses they ought to expect, curses that were going to come their way if they didn't keep the stipulations of the covenant. So with all of that kind of background in place, let's take a look and walk through Deuteronomy chapter 28. Now, we're going to start in these first verses with the blessings. God is going to recount the blessings for us. So we're going to start at verse 1. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all of his commands that I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on the earth. All these blessings will come to you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. So he's setting it up. He says, here's the things that are going to happen if you obey all the stipulations. You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. In other words, everyone is going to enjoy blessing. The fruit of your womb will be blessed and the crops of 
your land and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds, the lambs of your flocks. So we're going to scroll down here and keep going. Your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You will be blessed when you come in and when you go out. So he's talking about fruit of the rooms. You're going to have, you're going to have kids. You're going to have abundant crops. The Lord will grant that your enemies who rise up against you will be defeated. Your military is going to have victory. Uh, they will come at you from one direction, but flee from you in seven. The Lord will send a blessing on your barns and on everything you put your hand to. The Lord, your God will bless you in the land he is giving you. So again, you're going to have victory in, in against foreign militaries. You're going to have abundant food. The Lord will establish you as his holy temple, as he promised you an oath. If you keep the commands, the Lord, your God, and walk in obedience to him, then all the peoples of the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they will fear you. The Lord will grant you abundant prosperity in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock, the crops of the ground and the land he swore to your ancestors to give you. So again, what are these markers of blessing? Food, children, livestock and and livestock was the ground of their economic system it was the ground of them being able to to work and um, support their families military victories the lord will open the heavens the storehouse of his bounty to send rain on your land in season and to bless all the work of your hands you will lend to nations and borrow from none so again he's letting them know that there's going to be an abundance of wealth the Lord will, um, all right, we'll stop right there. So those are the blessings. These are the big blessings of how Israel would know that they are walking in obedience with the Lord. These are the things that would come to them, okay? All right, now let's switch gears. We're going to start at verse 15. If you're following along, if you have your Bible, we're going to take a look now at the curses. What's going to happen if they disobey? So Bob's going to scroll down there. Perfect. Verse 15. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees that I am giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. You will be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. In other words, everyone's going to be cursed. Your basket and your kneading trough will be cursed. So in other words, your food supply is going to be cursed. The fruit of your womb will be cursed. So children are going to dry up. Your population will dry up. The crops of your land, the calves of your herds, and the lambs of your flocks, you will be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and rebuke in everything you put your hand to until you are destroyed and come to sudden ruin because of the evil you have done and forsaking him. The Lord will plague you with diseases 
until he has destroyed you from the land you are entering to possess. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease, with fever and inflammation, with scorching heat and drought, with blight and mildew that will plague you until you perish. The sky over your head will be bronze, the ground beneath you iron. The Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. It will come from the skies until you are destroyed. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. They will come at you from one direction, but you will flee from them in seven. You will become a thing of horror to the kingdoms on the earth. So here we've had, so far we've had, Military defeat. How do you know you're under a curse as a nation? Military defeat. Your um, drought. Your food supply dries up. Your your wombs become barren. Um, disease starts to take over. These are the signs of uh, that will result in in economic destruction. Um, that you know that you ha- are coming under judgment. We're going to scroll down to here to um. Let's see, verse 28 to 33. I'm going to start there. The Lord will afflict you with madness, blindness, and confusion of mind. At midday, you will grope around like a blind person in the dark. You will be unsuccessful in everything you do. Day after day, you will be oppressed and robbed with no one to rescue you. No one's coming (laughs) to your rescue if God is against you. You will be pledged to be married to a woman, but another will take her and rape her. You will build a house, but you will not live in it. You will plant a vineyard, but you will not even begin to enjoy its fruit. Your ox will be slaughtered. Your sheep will be given to your enemies. No one will rescue them. Your sons and daughters will be given to another nation. So your children are going to be probably either killed in the military or sold off as slaves. Um, You will wear out your eyes watching for them day after day, powerless to lift a hand. A people you do not know will eat your land and the labor you produce, you will have nothing but cruel oppression all of your days. Wow. That's pretty vivid. All right, we're going to quickly scroll down here to uh, verse 36. I'm going to read a few more verses here. The Lord will drive you and the king you set over you to a nation unknown to you and your ancestors. And there... You will worship other gods. Wow. You will become an object of ridicule among all the peoples where the Lord will drive you. So if the Lord turns his face against you, not only will your land get taken from you, but you might get displaced from your land, taken to another country and where you will be surrounded by foreign gods. You will sow much seed in the field, but you will harvest little locusts will devour it. In other words, natural disasters are coming. They're they're coming for your wealth. Things are going to happen to dry up your wealth. You will plant vineyards and cultivate them. You will not drink the wine or gather the grapes because the worms will eat them. And finally, we're going to end here at verse 45. 
all of these curses will come on you. They will pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed. Now, why is all this happening? He reminds them once again, because you did not obey the Lord your God and observe the commands and decrees he gave you. This is, this is Allison saying in the comments here, it, this is intense. Yeah, that's a good word for it. It's very intense. Notice that the, the, the blessings are only 12, 12 verses. The curses are quite a bit longer. God wants to really give them a warning, spells it out in a lot of detail. Here are the things that are going to happen to you. The whole second half of Deuteronomy 28 is the anatomy of a nation under judgment. Okay, so we walk through Deuteronomy chapter 28, which is um, part of God's covenant with the nation of Israel. Now, if you're astute, you might be wondering, yes, but America is not the new Israel. We are not in a covenant nation relationship as a nation with God the way that the ancient Israelites were. So wouldn't that mean that Deuteronomy 28 doesn't apply? That's true. Um, America is not in a covenant relationship with God the way that Israel was. And America is not the new Israel. I want to make that very, very clear. Even so, I do think that Deuteronomy 28 provides some useful and important information and I'm going to explain why that is, because what we see emerge in Scripture is patterns. The things that God promised would come as a catastrophe against Israel, there is definitely some overlap to that when we look at God's judgment on the nations. Not everything, um, but some of the things do seem to be a pattern in Scripture um, that we see pop up and that it doesn't only pertain to Israel. So we're going to look at a few biblical examples of destruction of Gentile nations. And I think that when we compare the descriptions of how Israel was destroyed and how the nations were destroyed, I think we might notice some parallels. Now, in part one of this teaching, we discussed briefly the sins of Sodom. I want to really quickly remind us of what those sins were. We're going to go to Ezekiel 16 because it has a really good summary of it and refresh our memory about those particular sins. So we're going to take a look at that. Now, in this context here, Ezekiel is comparing the sins of Israel or Judah with the sins of Sodom, and he he's he says to Judah, you know, you are a true daughter of your mother who despised her husband and her children. Uh, you are a true sister of your sisters who despised their husbands and their children. This is, this is not a um, flattering thing that Ezekiel is, is describing Judah this way. Um, your older sister, let's see, your mother was a Hittite. Your father was an Amorite. In other words, they were, they were pagans. Okay. Your older sister was Samaria who lived north of you and with her daughters and your younger sister who lived in the south of you with her daughters was Sodom. You not only followed in their ways and copied their detestable practices, but in all your ways, you soon became even more depraved than they. Surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters 
never did what you and your daughters have done. So whatever sins Sodom did, Judah's sins were worse in God's eyes. Wow. Okay. Now, this is the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty or prideful. They did detestable things before me. And these detestable things is a shorthand way of saying they were engaging in um, witchcraft and um, sexual sins, homosexuality, uh, bestiality, and all of those things like straight out of Leviticus 19. You can see all of the detestable sins that are there. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. So the idea of Sodom is it was supposed to remind the Jews like, oh yeah, God's judgment, it's real. And, and that, could, that could happen to us. So when we go to Genesis 19 and we read Moses's description of God's judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah, we quickly see that the city has become overrun with violence and unusual sexual practices. And these are the things, these detestable things are what it is that causes God to bring judgment against them. And this is how we know that a nation is about to go to judgment is when they are engaged in these widespread practices. So we're going to look at Genesis 19 and we're going to read what happens to Sodom. Uh, we're going to start at verse 14 here. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry, get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. <laughs> How many times did Israel not listen to the prophets? They, they, they looked for prophets that would, that would bring comfort and, and talk about prosperity and everything's going to be okay. Just like this, Lot is trying to warn them God's judgment is coming. And they just thought he was joking around. With the coming of the dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, hurry, take your wife, your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hands, his hand and the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them safely out of the city. For the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, flee for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, no, my lords, please, your servant has found favor in your eyes and you have shown great kindness to me, sparing my life. I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me. I'll die. Look, here's a town near enough to me. Uh, it is small. Let me run to that. Uh, then my life will be spared. He said to them, very well, I will grant you this request too. It's like Lot even wants to tell him like where he's going to go be rescued. Okay. So interesting. Um, I will not overthrow the, the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. This is why the town was called Zoar. And by the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord, listen to this description, rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from, from the Lord out of the heavens. 
Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all who were living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. The next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, toward the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. This is a pretty vivid picture that we see of God's judgment of the nations. And, and we know that in this case, there was complete destruction. I want to look at a really quick map. Those of you who, who saw my, my stream a few weeks ago with Todd Bolin, we did a whole podcast about the importance of maps. And I just want to show you really quick, you know, what cities we're talking about and where these are located. And you'll see here, um, it's near the Dead Sea. And there, there's a blow up of the area on the right there. And you'll see um, that Sodom and Gomorrah there are um, kind of, in the lower right area. And then you'll see due south of that is Zoar. And that's where Lot fled. Um, and this is actually an area that has been excavated by archaeologists. And archaeologists feel fairly confident that this is the ancient place for Sodom and Gomorrah. And this biblical district description of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is so vivid. I, I want to draw your attention um, to a wonderful video that I watched just a few days ago about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and something um, that archaeology has told us about this destruction that really confirms the biblical account. Um, the name of the video is called Sulfur Balls of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's on the Expedition Bible YouTube channel. I highly recommend this channel. Um, I'm going to try to get the guy on my podcast. I might be too small of a venue to get him to come on. But um, I really would like to talk to um, the guy who runs this channel. I've followed him for about 15, 20 years. And um, I think it'd be wonderful to have him on. But his videos are awesome. And um, I showed a couple of them to um, our family during our devotions. So go check it out. It's, again, it's called the Expedition Bible YouTube channel. And in this particular video is a, an overview of some of the archaeological evidence for the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm going to have Bob just play the first minute or so of it with the hope that you'll go check out the video, but it'll kind of give you the gist of what it's like. So we'll see if he can cue that up for us here. So I'm up here on the site uh, called locally Numera. And this is the site that the archeologists associated with Gomorrah. So here you can see that ashy layer that's just underneath the surface. Uh, this is full of burned pottery. It's full of the fragments of human bones. The question is, is what evidence is there of this burning sulfur that rained down? Well, it seems that the culprit are these sulfur balls that are also found in this area. Okay, that's it. Um, 
So go check that out. It's a really cool video about the sulfur balls and just a, the vivid um, confirmation of the description in scripture of how God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, he, he literally, it seems, rained down sulfur balls in, in these cities and completely wiped them out. So, and again, though, I think it's interesting that Sodom appears several times in scripture as a warning, almost as like a, a preview of coming attractions for what other nations ought to expect for God's judgment. Um, it, Ezekiel uses it as an example to tell Judah um, about their impending destruction. It's referenced a couple more times in the New Testament as a comparison to the final judgment. I think that it's sobering to think about um, God's judgment against the nations and in particular Sodom, because it just is so extreme and intense that it ought to serve as a warning to us as individuals and as nations that, um, you know, God's judgment, uh, he'll only put up with evil for so long before sending judgment. Now let's look at a couple more examples of what God's judgment against the nations look like. Now we talked in part one about the Assyrians and we talked about some of the sins of the Assyrians, their, horrible um, practices in warfare and murdering people and um, just all of the forced slavery that they engaged in and relocation programs and all of the, the wickedness that they had. And, and it's interesting that the entire book of Nahum is a basically a prediction about the destruction of this powerful and seemingly impenetrable uh, Assyrian army. I mean, imagine like I'm old. So for me growing up, thinking about um, the, the Soviet Union, that was like this impenetrable power, world power that would never fall. And then all of a sudden in the late 80s, early 90s, it was like one country just right after another fell like dominoes. And it was like, all of a sudden it broke up and um, there's a wonderful older book called The Body by Chuck Colson, where he documents um, a, a significant role that Christianity played in the fall of the Soviet Union. And so, you know, we see in the fall of the Assyrian Empire uh, that nations don't last forever, even if they are very strong. Um, God can bring them down quickly. And even if it seems like they have an impenetrable military, God can um, bring them down. We're going to look really quickly at just a few verses from the book of Nahum, chapter 2. The attacker advances against you, Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Guard the fortress, watch the road, brace yourself, marshal all your strength. Now, remember back to Deuteronomy 28, what's one of the signs the nation is under judgment is their military falls. Once God has set you, his, his face against you, uh, your, your military, no matter how strong it is, how, no matter how impenetrable it is, it can fall. And he's saying, get ready 
for an attacker that's coming against you. It says the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob and the shields of the soldiers. Oh, go back. There we go. Um, the soldiers are red. The warriors are clad in scarlet. The metal on the chariots flashes on the day that they are made ready. The spears of juniper are brandished. The chariots storm through the streets, rushing back and forth through the squares. They look like flaming torches. They dart like lightning. Nineveh summons her picked troops. So remember, one of the things that, that the Assyrians were known for were their chariots. Their chariots of, of these flaming chariots, you know, that's, that's how they look to their enemies. Nineveh summons her picked troops, yet they stumble on their way. They dash to the city wall. The protective shield is put in place. The river gates are thrown open and the palace collapses. It is decreed that Nineveh be exiled and carried away. Her female slaves moan like doves and beat on their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose water is draining away. This is a powerful um, depiction of the fall of the Assyrian Empire, including the chariots. This is a very stunning account that we read here. Um, it would have probably blown the, the minds of the Israelites to even think about um, Assyria falling. Um, but this parallels the description of Deuteronomy 28 what Israel could expect for its covenant disobedience. Its army would de be defeated. Its people would be carried off as slaves and its wealth stripped. So as you see, there's, there's some parallels there in the, 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 the symptoms of what it looks like as God is bringing curses over a nation. Let's look at one more example. There's a remarkable description of a sequence of sins in Leviticus chapter 18, that I think will be helpful for our discussion. We're going to start out with, uh, again, this is Leviticus chapter 18, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must, you must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live. And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I'm bringing you. Do not follow their practices. All right, we're going to scroll down to verse 20, because what I really want you to see is um, what were the sins that the Canaanites were engaged in where God hands their land over to the Israelites? Do not have sexual relations with your neighbor's wife and defile yourself with her. Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Moloch. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. This is detestable. This is the same word that was used to describe the detestable acts um, in Ezekiel about the city of Sodom. Do not have sexual relations with an animal. Do not defile yourself in these ways because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the land was defiled. So it's not just the people became corrupted by the sin. 
even the land became corrupted by the sin. So I punished it for the sin and the land vomited out its inhabitants. So you notice what happens here. This is another corollary to the curses in Deuteronomy 26. If you see a nation engaged in homosexuality, bestiality, um, promise, sexual promiscuity, what will God do? He will take the wealth and wealth equals land. He will take that land and that wealth away from one nation and give it to another nation. Now, in this case, he's get, taking the land from the Canaanites and giving it to his people, Israel. But we see that pattern over and over in scripture. Moses lists these very specific sins that lead to God's judgment against Canaan. And he warns Israel, don't be like this. Don't become like these people because otherwise the land will vomit you out as well. And these sins included, like we said, sexual sins, child sacrifice, demolic, homosexuality, bestiality. And we see that judgment play out in the book of Joshua. We're going to look for just a minute at the destruction of Jericho in Joshua chapter 6, because that's where God starts handing over the wealth, the transfer of wealth from the Canaanites to the Israelites. So we're going to look at Joshua chapter 6. Okay, so this is the part where Joshua is giving instructions about them walking around the the walls of, of Jericho. Okay, he commands the armies to shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now notice the difference in Israel's battles is that God goes before them. That's where the covenant relationship really makes a difference. Um, God goes before them in the battle. They, God has them do crazy things because he wants um, people to the other nations to know that, that he is the God of Israel. So he's telling them, just shout, and I'm going to give you the city. Now, other times he uses nations to judge each other, and he isn't necessarily going before them in battle in a covenant uh, kind of a way. But um, yeah, so all right, let's keep, let's keep scrolling down here. Let's read a little bit more. They're going to rescue Rahab, the prostitute. Um, Now notice this verse in verse 19, all the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. So here God is telling the Israelites to plunder the Canaanites to steal their wealth. So they're not only um, taking their property they're, they're not only doing that, but they're killing their livestock and they're, they're burning the city because they trust in God to replace all of those things. But they're taking a certain amount of the wealth and they're going to give it to God as an offering. So again, we see parallels to Deuteronomy chapter 28. This is how you know that a nation is under judgment their wealth gets stolen, their land gets taken, their military is defeated. Okay, let's scroll down here a little bit more. Okay, they devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. So they didn't take anything. Here again, we have a a 
picture of God's judgment. And I want you to recall what we read in Leviticus 19, that sin doesn't just affect people. It can even affect the land. And I would say that livestock is part of that. And so when sin sometimes becomes so corrupt and it just corrupts everything, God sends the fullest judgment possible. Okay, one more passage. We're going to turn the pages over to Joshua chapter 10. We're just going to read a few verses here. We're going to start at verse 22. Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me. So here Joshua is conquering the land and five kings are uh, huddled together. Five Canaanite kings are huddled together in a cave. And Joshua says, open that cave and bring those kings out to me. So they brought the five kings out of the cave, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jeruth, Lachish, and Eglon. When they had brought these kings to Joshua, he summoned all the men of Israel and said to the army commanders who had come with them, come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. God was handing these kings over um, to Israel. Now, again, we see military defeat here. We see the disgracing of the wicked leaders. This harkens us back to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Joshua said to them, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you are going to fight. So he's giving him almost like a prophetic word picture here. Is he, they put their feet on the necks of these Canaanite kings. He says, this is what God is going to do to give us this land, to strip it from these wicked people and to give it to us. Then Joshua put the kings to death and exposed their bodies on five poles, and they were left hanging on the poles until evening. And then they buried them. Wow. So this is um, a picture of judgment. This is how we know the nation is under judgment. The book of Joshua is basically a recounting of how entire cities are wiped out by the Jewish army as a judgment for the sins that are described in Leviticus chapter 19. Their wealth was destroyed, their leaders were humiliated, their land was turned over to new owners. And why? Why did this happen? Because God's judgment against the wickedness of the Canaanites. The consequences of this wickedness is very much like the description of God's warning of what would happen in Deuteronomy chapter 28 if the Israelites did not obey the stipulations of the law. So what do we learn from all of this? God will tolerate the sins of a nation up to a point, and then he will bring calamity and judgment against them. Whether that calamity is against Israel or against Gentile nations. We see this under the old covenant. When God's eternal moral laws go unrepented for over time, and when corrupt leadership tolerate and participate in this corruption, 
then God will eventually destroy them. So this is the pattern that we see throughout the Old Testament. And I would say that this is the pattern of what we see in the fall of Rome. Um, eventually, the same types of problems overtook Rome. Widespread and rampant um, sexual immorality, deviancy, bestiality, homosexuality, corrupt governments, corrupt leaders. Their military started falling, um, and eventually their, their wealth was stripped away, and um, their land was taken over by other people, and destruction came. So that by the time of St. Augustine, um, in uh, I think his dates are in the early 400s, that's really like the changeover of the ending of the old Roman Empire. And Augustine is, is living right at the, the cusp of that empire change. And I would say, in my opinion, um, that eventually God brought down Rome. Now, I don't know that 100%, but it seems to follow the same pattern that we see in Scripture. Okay, I'm going to take a look at the comments now. Pam says, hi, Krista, I just watched part one, looking forward to part two, not one of your main points, but your explanation of resident aliens made sense. Why does this not compare to legal immigrants in the U.S.? Yeah, uh, boy, it's a good question. Um, I think what my answer would be off the top of my head is that in the covenant nature of the relationship in Israel, the resident aliens lived there and they were, they were agreeing to abide by certain covenant stipulations, such as the Sabbath and um, they could participate in the Passover. Um, and there were certain laws that pertain to them and there were certain laws that they were exempt from. But um, I think that, you know, in our situation, um, it's just not the same because we're, our country is not in a covenant relationship with God. And so um, I think that often there's just this collapsing, I think, because of the terminology of aliens and the Bible using this word of resident alien and people not really knowing what that is um, and then just quickly comparing it to undocumented um, immigrants or even even legal immigrants. And I think there's just sort of this collapsing of the terms, whereas I, I'm, I don't have a super well thought out situation on that, but that just initially strikes me as like kind of an apples and oranges type of situation. Um, and I think that people try to then leverage that to argue for open border policies and and unending social programs and, and that sort of a thing. And I just don't think that all of that can follow um, from that biblical statement about the resident aliens. And, and I could be wrong about that, but that's just what initially strikes me about it. Okay. Um, Raquel says, I'm just listening in. Based on the intense judgment in the Old Testament, it doesn't seem like we are in judgment quite yet. I would say she's probably referring to we as in our country, um, but it definitely sounds like we are heading there. 
Uh, not sure what everyone else is thinking. Yeah, it's a great question to weigh in on. I'm going to get to that in this last part of the conversation. Uh, Allison says, I can definitely see some of the signs based on that passage for Deuteronomy as well. Okay. Um, Tremera thinks that we are definitely rapidly <laughs> accelerating with uh, the sins in our country. Um, okay, let's see if there's any other questions. Sometimes Raquel says, sometimes I feel really sheltered living in the U.S. Everyone is walking around like nothing is going on, but it definitely feels like the calm before the storm. Yes. Um, okay. Okay, Amber's got a great question. Is it just the U.S. under judgment, or is this more on a global scale? I'm not sure the U.S. is more, more guilty than others. Is our belief that we are God's chosen nation a higher place than we have? That's a great question, Amber. And I would say the principles that I'm trying to give here are for any nation. Um, I'm just focusing on America because that's my context and where I'm living and what I pay the closest attention to in the news. But I think that the, the principles that I'm outlining here in this teaching, anyone could look at what's happening in their country and just begin to ask some questions. So with this, all of this data in hand, let us now answer our big question. Is America under God's judgment and that is the third movement of this teaching and my answer to this question is that it's quite possible now when we compare the biblical data with our current reality um, i'm only going to address our country's current sins i'm not going to go back in time and talk about our past sins like slavery from 150 years ago i'm just going to look at what's happening right now. Now, up until recently, the highest court in our country had protections in place to murder the unborn on demand for any reason. Now that Roe has been overturned for a few weeks, some states are acting to save some lives. And I think that that is at least a step in the right direction. Um, but other states are gearing up to make themselves into becoming tourist destinations to murder the unborn. I think that's deeply problematic. But what I notice is the legal protections. And when I look in scripture, especially in the prophets, when the leadership becomes corrupt and there are structures in place to engage in wide-scale sin. I think that is where things get really dangerous for a nation. Uh, let me give you another example. The highest court in our land has also codified protection for gay marriage, violating God's eternal moral law for preserving marriage. Now, we saw in detail um, what happened to Sodom, and that was one of the detestable sins. It's one of the sins that the Canaanites participated in that was explained in Leviticus chapter 19. This concerns me um, as being one of the symptoms 
of uh, are one of the key sins that could bring about God's judgment. The executive branch of our federal government has set up all kinds of protections just in the last year and a half um, for trans people, including in our own military. Um, our government has put protections in place to allow young children to take steps toward castrating themselves or removing their reproductive organs, even if parents object in some cases. Um, this to me is deeply troubling. It goes against the creation mandate. This is part of God's eternal moral law. Our country has widespread practices right now among um, the teacher unions, which, and, and the, the Department of Education, which is a federally funded um, arm and branch of the government, to encourage children to lie to their parents about their gender. This is, this is troubling for me. When I look at this um, and, and I start to think about the sins described in Scripture um, for when God's judgment gets um, put on a nation. Speaking of the military, um, our once very strong military, um, I'm hearing a lot of reports from parents about their kids who are in the military being reeducated about things like microaggressions and pronouns. The normalization of the gay agenda has become a key issue in the military and, and is um, hindering recruiting in the military. Uh, and there are rumors that other nations no longer fear our military. So when I look at the list of sins, I'm troubled. When, if it's true that some parts of our military are becoming weakened, that could possibly be a symptom of God's judgment against us. Our food supply is in jeopardy. I don't know if you're hearing about all the reports of, of the, the things that are happening with our food supply and how food plants are mysteriously being destroyed and burned down and, and um, farmers are, can't get the supplies that they need because inflation is so high and they can't buy diesel fuel because inflation is so high. And, and um, many, there's some troubling things happening with our food supply. Our government is engaged in a massive scheme to devalue our money and, and, and is creating astronomical debt just in the last two years. Our wealth is being drained away. These are all things I could see kind of some parallels to things described in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Divorce rates are skyrocketing. Birth rates are plummeting. Infertility is on the rise. These, these things bear a remarkable resemblance to the pattern of Scripture. Um, if God's eternal moral law remains the standard for judging nations, I think it's reasonable to speculate that our large-scale government-approved, unrepentant sin could be a stench 
in the nostrils of a holy God and that we could be under his judgment. And if we're not currently under his judgment, it might be knocking on our door. But you may notice that I said we could be under his judgment. I, I don't know this 100% to be a fact. Um, could ju God judge our nation? I think given the state of our large-scale national sin, I think he would definitely be, be within his rights to do so. But to say that God definitively is judging our nation, that's a step beyond what I can say, just as one person, a little YouTuber here on this little corner of the universe. But I think it is very possible that God could be judging our nation right now. And he might not be. I could be wrong. So I want to exercise an amount of due caution before speaking, you know, unequivocally for God, because um, he could be doing something completely different than what I think. And, um, you know, I know we would all love to perfectly discern, you know, all the cause and effects in the world. But I think the proper answer to the question of is America under God's judgment is possibly, maybe, you know, some, something resembling that. Um, and, and, but I think that because none of us are Old Testament prophets, prophets, we have to maintain a, a level of humility. But here's what I do know. There will be a final judgment of all people at the end of history. And let the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah um, be a, a vivid reminder to us that we will eventually come to a time when God's mercy will be withdrawn. We could come to a time in this nation where God's mercy would be withdrawn from us, that our land could be taken from us by another military. Our wealth could be removed from us, that we may sow crops and build businesses and not benefit from them, that our children could be impacted, could be carried off, that we might not have the level of prosperity of our parents and grandparents. That could be possible. But regardless of whether God is currently judging our nation or not, the best hope to cure what ails us is a vigorous preaching of the gospel. We as the church have an obligation to be a strong, authentic, prophetic voice, to, to be a priestly nation within our nation. As we reside in a godless nation, God calls his church to be a strong and prophetic voice to call our wildly rebellious country and our neighbors to repentance. And as we do, we also have to be sober-minded enough to know that judgment begins with God's people. The question that I think Christians must ask ourselves 
is not merely is our nation under God's judgment, but also are the leaders, are our leaders in the church under God's judgment? What sins is the church currently guilty of committing? What sins am I as an individual not repenting of? I think these are equally important questions for us to reflect on and to consider. The church cannot be that effective prophetic voice of the culture if its members and its leaders are mired down in cowardice, heterodox teaching, and unrepentant moral sins. This is the very definition of what Jesus means when he says, what good is the salt if it loses its saltiness? And that leads me to the final thought that I want you to consider tonight. If you are wondering how to live in the midst of an increasingly wicked culture, here's, here's what you do. It's the same charge that it's always been. We're going to read really quickly here from 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to start with verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Judgment is coming. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear Brother Paul, who also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him, he writes the same way in all of his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. This is the charge before us. Preach the gospel, live a holy and blameless life. These are the things that we must do. And this is what this channel is all about. It is about equipping you to disciple your kids and proclaim the gospel so that you may um, not fall away in your faith, that we may live as salt and light uh, in the midst of a godless generation. Okay, I'm going to read a few more comments here. All right. Many of the sins, Helen says, many of the sins in churches are exactly like the world. This is troubling. (laughs) And this is what I mean by heterodox teaching. 
as far as I can see, there's three big issues in the church right now. Cowardly leaders, cowardice, heterodox doctrine. We have this mixture of good doctrine and sound doctrine and unsound doctrine and unrepentant sin. These are the three things that I think is hindering many churches and many individual Christians from truly being the prophetic voice that we ought to be to the culture. Amber asks, how does the average layperson try to help bring change in the church? Okay, I'm going to assume you're meaning by the church as in your local church. Um, and that really, it depends on what God calls you to. Um, if, if, you know, whoever you are, I would say the first step is getting clear on your own faith. Um, we have offer a lot of opportunities at the center for biblical unity. You can join a book club. You can jump on an online class, um, learn more about your faith. There are tons of resources out there. Um, secondly, I would say, talk to the Lord about what your special spiritual gifts are. Um, if you're a man, you know, is God calling you to leadership? Does, does your elder team need your voice? Um, how can you serve? How can, if, if you're working in the children's ministries, how can you advocate for better doctrinal instruction for children? Uh, if you're serving in the women's ministries, how can you advocate for better doctrinal instruction in the women's ministries? Wherever you find yourself, figure out how you will be a voice of courage, biblically faithful teaching, right? And a call to uh, repentance from sin. I think that's how you do it. That's how everybody has to do it. I hope you found this helpful. I hope you'll share the teaching with others. Uh, I look forward to your, your comments and your feedback. And um, thank you so much for watching. Thank you for your support, all of you who support me financially. I just want to say thank you for that. And um, I appreciate how you are partnering with Monique and I in this ministry. Uh, we could not do this without you. So thank you. Good night and God bless. Be sure to follow Theology Mom on Facebook and like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Don't forget to catch Krista next week for more theology fun on Theology Mom and all the things. Thanks for listening. Thank you.